Thank you, worship team. Um, if you're new with us, we've, we've been in a, in, a, in a series in Genesis. We've been unpacking Genesis, and uh, we're quite some way into that, and it's been quite an exciting journey and uh, a real deep and enriching journey through Genesis. We are still in Genesis, and we're going to be there for some time. We're in chapter 17, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to, to, to chapter 17 in the book of Genesis, and uh, we're going to be reading quite a chunk of that this morning. Uh, but before we do that, just want to ask a question, and the 8 o'clock is answered, so um, I'm going to ask you to answer as well. If they can do it, you can do it. When you think of the word power or powerful, what do you think of? It's yeah! <laughs> That's the antithesis of it, yeah, 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 yeah? <laughs> hey. Load shooting, no, okay. No, serious now, no, serious. <laughs> Um, Jesus, we're at church, go to pay the Jesus card, yeah, okay, God, I wasn't so spiritual, I was like atomic bomb, uh, president of the United States, doesn't matter who it is, right, but apparently the most powerful man in the world, um, think of a bulldozer, my son likes superheroes, I think of superheroes, don't really exist, but they're still powerful, right, um, think of power, think of powerful things, when it's back in his heyday, maybe, right, um, but how often do you think of yourself when you think of that? So if I were to say power or powerful, how often do you think of yourself? And I don't think the answer would be, oh, regularly. And I think that's a problem. We sang a, we sang a song at the 8 a.m. called Touching Heaven, Touching Earth. And I think this morning, really, just my heart, and I believe God's heart for us, is that we'd experience the power of God in our lives. That's what we call the message, experiencing the power of God in our lives. And we're going to look at five principles that we draw out of Genesis chapter 17, which I believe if we apply them in our lives and, and live out these principles in our lives, we're going to be experiencing more of the power of God. And here's why this is so important. God's people are meant to be powerful people. We're not meant to be making apologies for the fact that we are both spiritual and physical, and we get to tap into the most powerful resource ever, and that is our God. By the power of the Spirit, God enables us. Christians should be standing head and shoulders above people, not because we're proud, but because our God is so great. We should be powerful people. We shouldn't be walking around lacking power. We should be people who are incredibly powerful. And we think about ourselves, we think about our identity in the Lord. It needs to be, I am a powerful person. That's not self-counsel or power of positive thinking or positive words or speaking something over us, pretending that it's not really there, but wishing it was. It's reality for us that we are powerful people. And I think sometimes we don't tap into that space because we don't believe it, and so we don't live it out. And this morning, hopefully you'll be encouraged, and God would do a new work in our hearts and bring us back to a place where we realize and are reminded by the fact that every single day of our lives, we can walk experiencing the power of God. We're meant to be doing that. If we're going to change our city, if we're going to change this nation, it's not going to happen by any other means except through the church. If we pray and we ask God to change our nation, but when we pray that, God looks at us and goes, well, you're my hands and feet. I'm going to use you, and that's impossible to do. You can do nothing apart from God. All right, so this morning we're going to, we're going to look at that. Um, in, the, in, in the text that we read, that we're going to read, um, God, God appears to Abraham, and, and he appears to him, and the, and, the, and the Hebrew word is El Shaddai. He appears to him as El Shaddai. 
And there's some debates about the word Shaddai, but the word El means God, and, and the debates about the word Shaddai is whether it means mountain or reference to mountain. In other words, God is really strong and really powerful, or whether it means nourishing. And word really, some, some scholars say, comes from um, uh, a word to describe a woman's breast and basically a child being nourished or receiving nourishment from her. But either way, regardless of what that word means, this is the first time this word is used in Scripture and God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai and it just refers to the fact that God is all-powerful and all-sufficient and a God who can do anything and meet any need. That's how he reveals himself to Abraham. And I think it's important for us because we know God as Father. We know God as Healer. A lot of us know God as God the Shepherd who disciplines us and brings us back into line like a good father does. But very few Christians, I believe, are living out their daily walk with the Lord knowing Him as God Almighty. God All-Powerful, where the power of God is coursing through you. And that's not a weird thing. It's just, I think it's what kingdom living is meant to be about. And we're going to unpack that. I'm going to show you that just now. We wonder why we don't experience the power of God or why we're unable to tap into these things. And I think it's because we're not really living according to these principles we get out of Genesis chapter 17. And so we're going to unpack those five principles and hopefully God encourages us and we walk out of here knowing the power that's available to us and living lives differently. On Sundays, we always come to receive God's word and worship together, but it has to translate somewhere. It has to move outside of this building. It has to move into our workplace, onto the sports fields. It has to go somewhere into our families. And I really believe broken hearts, stone hearts are going to be changed by the power of God working through his people. Right? So let's read together. Genesis chapter 17, like I said, it's quite a chunk. Um, we're not going to exegete this thing. Like, so we're not going to be here tomorrow still. Right? We, will, we will finish. It says this, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall, circumcise in, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant, and God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. 
I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. There is so much there. And, and, and you could do a whole series on just that passage in and of itself. But really the question I want to ask is what principles can we draw out of that passage that help us to be able to experience, that will help us to live daily in the power of God. And the first one we're going to get to now, but it comes out of verses 2 and, two and 1, 1 and 2. Right? When Abraham was 99 years old, this is when the Lord comes to him. Sarah's 90, he's 99, and the Lord says this, you're going to have a son. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of many 99-year-old men fathering children with wives of 90 years old lately. Sarah and Abraham were both beyond their physical ability to bear children. Even in that day and age, that was a ripe old age. I would love to live to 100. It's like my goal. In cricket, it's good. In life, it's even better. If I had all my faculties with me, I'm like, Lord, please let me live to 100. It would be cool. The Lord can come back before then, but if I'm going to live, I'd love to live to 100. But basically, God gives to Abraham this promise that is really unbelievable. And some people think that Abraham laughs in an unbelieving way, like Sarah did. But God doesn't rebuke Abraham for laughing. He rebukes Sarah for laughing when she hears about it, because it was a heart condition. Abraham still, in his unbelief, believes there's a sense in which I hear God, this thing is so incredulous, it's unbelievable, but I'm still going to bow down at his feet and worship. There's this reverence before the Lord. And so there was this heart that goes, God, this thing's impossible, yet I still believe you. And so this thing is like, it's amazing. And so, and so I laugh. And this is what Abraham did. And this is why I believe he inherited this thing. And he was able to experience God's power. Principle number one. When it comes to experiencing God's power in our lives, we cannot and must not discount God's ability to do the impossible. Cannot. Cannot write off our God. Cannot say, this thing is beyond God. And I can only speak for myself, but there have been many times in my life where I've just gone, this is beyond God. I don't believe that outright or say it outright, but there's a, there's a spiritual attitude that I have. And I display that attitude by not going to the Lord in prayer, thinking that it's a waste of time. Think to myself, how can God work this thing out? How can God change this or turn it around for His glory? How can God use somebody like me in this circumstance? And we don't say outright, God, I don't believe you, but the way that we act and we live and the things that we do or don't do prove that we don't trust God to do a miracle. Think about our country. You hear somebody say, God can turn our country around. How many of you go, let's be honest. Right, so hey, God can really save that person. That person can, can be redeemed. You go, no ways. Just don't see how God's going to do that. And we, we treat God like that. And I think a lot of us don't experience the power of God in our lives because we're not going to God for His power for those things. God says you don't have because you don't ask. And I think we totally write God off. He can do everything else and all of the other things, but when it comes to this one thing, He's unable to do it. Whatever that is for you, whatever it is that is 
is that you've experienced. And with that attitude, what ends up happening is we give up. We go, that's it, I'm done. Or we go, I've prayed for so long and I've trusted for so long and I've believed for so long and it hasn't happened, so now I'm just going to accept the status quo. It obviously means God doesn't want to do anything. And I want to say to you this morning, that is not the attitude God has called these people to have. We continue and we continue and we continue to trust God and we never write the God of the impossible off. Of course, God chooses to work in the mundane things. God is always working. He's working in the mundane things all the time, and he gets glory for that all the time. Hopefully, he should be. We should see him in the small things. But God often glorifies his name through the impossible. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was speaking to them about the impossibility of people being saved. And after this, they were a little bit jaded. They were like, well, who can get saved then? If it's like... You know, a camel going through the eye of a needle, who can get saved? And Jesus responds to him like this, and he says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Jesus establishes this principle. What is impossible for you is impossible for you, but don't then ascribe impossibility to God. Don't say that your God is unable to do it. What is impossible for you and what your mind can't conceive, God has already established and done. Just think about our own salvation. If you're a Christian in this place this morning, the greatest miracle you've ever experienced and the greatest encounter of the power of God you've ever had in your life is when you got redeemed and were saved. If you think about what God did there, He didn't take a good person and make them better or a bad person and make them good. He took a dead person and made them alive. He took you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of light. He, he changed ownership. He took you out of Satan's hands, changed your destiny and delivered you into the kingdom of light. That is incredible power. And I can promise you this. I'm not just saying this as like a way to just buffer this point. But if God can save me, he can do anything. Right? Speak for my wife, so they say, say the same thing. Right? But God has redeemed us out of some really broken, broken, broken stuff. And if you had met me, I don't know, 20 years ago, you there's no way this guy's going to be saved. God did that, and I think we all have that testimony. And so we've got no excuse as Christians to sit here and go, God can't do stuff. The fact that you're saved means that God did something so incredible in your life that nothing should be beyond your God to do. Paul says this in quoting Genesis 17. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He's quoting what God says to Abraham. And then Paul says this in response to that. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that are not as if they are. That's what our God does. And if we're going to experience the power of God in our lives, we need to understand that although things may not be, our God can call them as if they are. That's who we serve. Second principle comes also from, from verses 1 and 2. God, after speaking to Abraham, he says this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenants between you and me. Second principle, to experience the power of God in our lives, we need to walk blamelessly before the Lord. This word blameless doesn't mean that we have to be sinless. Can we have the second principle there? There we go. doesn't mean that you have to be sinless. This word blameless speaks more of a faithfulness and without blame in the heart, sincere or wholly devoted or single-heartedness. And so when God calls Abraham, he doesn't say, oh, from this moment on, you need to be perfect. He says, from this moment on, I am your God. You are my people, and now I want you to be wholly devoted to me. And I think sometimes, especially in this culture, especially in our day and age, I've seen so many people try and marry a love for the world and a love for God. 
And God's word has already spoken very clearly about that in the book of Revelation. He says, man, speaking to the church of Laodicea, he says, I wish you were either cold or, or hot. I wish you were either a nice frozen or like cold mocha on a hot summer's day, milkshake on a hot summer's day, or I wish you were this really hot cup of hot cocoa on a cold winter's night. I wish you were either both of those, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out my mouth, Jesus says. And there's this place where I think we try and cover up our sin and we pretend that our sin is not offensive to God. Or we compare ourselves to other people and go, well, my heart condition is not that heart condition. I think that's worse and so I feel like I'm better. And we think that somehow we can sin in a vacuum and that doesn't permeate into the church and into the body. And that somehow we can sin and get away with our heart conditions and our mind conditions and even physically acting out sinful stuff. Even when people aren't looking, we think that God doesn't notice and He's going to turn the blind eye because there's grace. Church, God takes sin seriously. You don't sin in a vacuum. In other words, it permeates like the yeast of the Pharisees. It permeates through the dough. You take a little bit of yeast and it works its way through the dough. So will sin do that in your life. Remember the story of Achan and his family. When God's people go into the promised land, they go to take over the city of Ai. They go, but Achan and his family took stuff they weren't supposed to take. And the, the armies of Israel go against the city of Ai and they get destroyed. People die. They lose their lives. And Joshua comes back and goes, what has happened, God? And God says, lift your face up. There is sin in the camp. Deal with the sin. And then go and fight again. And, Ai, and, and Achan and his family were stoned to death. And then straight after that purging, they have victory. And I think the same is true for the church in our personal lives and in the church. I think we need to look very carefully and seriously about the stuff in our lives and come before God humbly with fear and trembling, knowing that He's a righteous God. And God says to Abraham, walk blamelessly before me, purity of heart. Take that thing that's at the epicenter of your life, whether it's your security, whether it's your money, whether it's family, it doesn't matter what it is, and take it out of the center and replace it with Jesus because that's where He belongs. And I think when we do that, we're going to start to walk in the power of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless towards Him. God is a jealous God, and He's zealous for you. And I think if we replace Him with anything else, there's no way we're going to be walking in the power of the Spirit. There's no way we're going to be walking in the power of God. I'm a dad. And there's no ways I am going to bless my son when he's doing something, or my daughter when she's doing something that's wrong. I'm not going to encourage that behavior. And I'm going to remove stuff. And God's going to do the same thing. And I think we need to be in a place where we need to be honest about our lives and our hearts, and we need to go, God, I want to step into the fullness of what you have for me. So I might need to repent of some stuff. In fact, if there's stuff there, I need to get rid of it. That's David says this in Psalm 66, If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Joshua chapter 3 verse 5, Joshua says this to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do a new thing. I really believe God has promised us as a church and as a nation that he's going to do a new thing through his church. And God will wait for another generation. This generation will die out and he'll raise up another one. God will always accomplish his will because he is sovereign. But who gets to be part of that is a different story. The Israelites lost out. A whole generation lost out because they were sinful and hard-hearted before the Lord. And a new generation took over. We need to consecrate ourselves and set ourselves apart for God because tomorrow God's going to do a new thing. 
And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. The next principle, principle number three, comes from verses 5 and 6 and 15 and 16. Here's what the Lord says. It says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude. And then he goes on, he says, And as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarai shall be her name. And she will be blessed. In the Western world, we have names, obviously. Right? We have names. But I think the meaning of names are lost on us a little bit. So if I don't ask most people, do you know what the meaning of your name is? Not many people will know the meaning of their name. And not many people name children according to the meaning of the name's meaning. There are people in our country and our culture and, and certain cultures who do name according to the meaning of a name. I grew up in the Eastern Cape. Corsa culture and history and heritage is very much part of what I grew up with. And so I've got friends. I've got a friend named Siavuya. Corsa name, which just means we are happy. And so the parents gave Siavuya his name because they were happy. Right? It's a really beautiful thing. And so named according to the meaning. Bongani is a Zulu name. It means be grateful. Right? Tandiwe, Corsa name, means beloved is the same as our son's name, Andy and I really sought the Lord for the, the name of our children. And God said, I'm going to give you a son, and you will call him David. And we had been trying to fall pregnant for about a year, and about a week after I got that word, someone prayed off us, we fell pregnant. Maybe too much information, but just letting you know, <laughs> right? And we called him David, and we had been praying for a strong name, and the name of David means beloved. And so Abigail as well, the same thing happened with her. Very similar circumstances, and God said, call her Abigail. And we were like, what does that mean? And it means the father's joy. There's really powerful meanings. Eve's name, Eve means the mother of all the living. Abraham means father of a multitude or father of nations. And so the idea in ancient Hebrew culture was that the name of the person often would tell you about the destiny or the, or the life projection of this person or what happened during their birth or their conception, what type of person they are. And so God was big into changing names because some people's names just didn't suit what God wanted them to be doing or who he said they now were. Some names have got horrendous meanings. And I really feel there's this biblical principle that when you speak a person's name, you're speaking the meaning of that name over them. And it's not this hocus-pocus thing, but it's this real power in prophetically speaking the meaning of a name over somebody. And so God changes people's names all the time in the scriptures. And here we see Abraham becoming Abraham, Sarai becoming Sarah. But there's more to this name change than meets the eye. It's not just the name meaning that changes. And a, a, a scholar by the name of uh, James Boyce points this out. He says, for God's people, ancient Hebrew culture, this would have stood out to them in a way that it wouldn't have stood out to us. But when God changes Sarah and Abraham's name, he puts a ha in there. It's this breathy sound. It's from the Hebrew word hey, which refers to the ruach of God, which is the Hebrew word for the spirit or the breath of God. He puts it into the middle of Abraham and Sarah's name as he changes it. And so the meaning changes, but also what then becomes to happen is that the breathy sound, according to James Boyce, would jump out because it represented the spirit of God. And so right in the renaming of Abraham and Sarah, as you speak their name, you're reminded that God is in the middle of this. And it is by the Spirit of God that she falls pregnant. It is by the Spirit of God that their destinies are changed and that God moves them into a different direction, that God establishes a covenant. This is totally God, the power of the Spirit. And when you spoke their names, it was reminded to them and to everybody else that God had done this thing. And similarly, I think, 
Point number three, if we're going to experience the power of God daily in our lives, we need to be filled with the power of the Spirit of God. It's not done apart from the Spirit of God in our lives. But what does that mean? Two things to consider quickly. One, there's Holy Spirit person and there's Holy Spirit power. That's the second one. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. God said, that's a deposit I give to you when you get saved. We all have the Holy Spirit person. None of us have a quarter or a third or a tenth or a whole or a half. It's one Holy Spirit. He comes to indwell you. But then there's Holy Spirit power. And I think a lot of us don't experience that. It's like a tap being filled with water in the pipes, but you just don't open it. Holy Spirit power is the flow of water from the tap, which has the water in it. You've got the Holy Spirit, but in order to experience God's power, we need to be asking Him for the power of the Spirit in our lives. Some, uh, some examples are Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. He's got the Holy Spirit. This is just after his baptism. It says, the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads him into the desert. And then it says, after the desert experience, read then verse 14, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And it's only after that that Jesus starts his earth, um, earthly ministry. Then we see in Luke 8, 42 to 46, Jesus was on his way and the crowds were almost crushing him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. And then you get this sort of like weird reply from Peter. He's like, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, everybody's touching you. Like, what do you mean who touched me? You're almost being crushed to death. Right? And Jesus says this, someone touched me. And he says, I know that someone touched me because power has gone out from me. Now the question is, does the Holy Spirit leave Jesus at that point? No. And so we often hear about this being filled with the Spirit. And I think the misconception is that we have to ask the Holy Spirit back into our lives, back into our lives. That's not the teaching here. The teaching is the power has left him. Holy Spirit is still there. And what did Jesus do whenever that happened? He would go and retreat and go be with God again. After nights of ministry and days of ministry, you think, how can Jesus now go and pray all night? Go and sleep. He goes, no. What's essential to my being and me doing what God has called me to do is being with the Father so I can be recharged. It's like a battery being recharged. I need to be with the Father. And God has done that so that we come to Him. It's not a once-off plug-in. Never. We get load shedding, spiritual load shedding. Let's contextualize it. Right? The power comes back on. And then the power goes. And the power comes back on, and then the power goes. And You know, stage three, four, and all that stuff, right? But here's the point. The point is God's drawing us into His presence. The Holy Spirit never leaves, but we go, God, through prayer and fasting and just being in the presence of God, I need your power. Fill me again, Lord. And unless we're experiencing that on a daily, on a daily basis, you're not going to be achieving for God the things that He wants you to achieve. Because everything that God calls His people to in His church to is beyond our ability to do. You can do nothing apart from me. You go, well, I can, I, I can make toast. I can make coffee. What do you mean? What God is speaking about there is significant kingdom stuff. You are not going to bear fruit of the kingdom unless it's by the power of the Spirit. And if you think you've borne fruit for the kingdom and it's apart from the power of the Spirit, it is not kingdom fruit. It's just biblically simple. Power of the Spirit Remain grafted into the vine and through the power of the Spirit to do this. And we need to experience that daily. And the fourth principle is, comes out of uh, chapter 10 through to, to 14. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. But basically, God says to Abraham, you need to be circumcised. 
And everywhere else needs to be circumcised. It needs to be an ongoing thing. And the question we need to ask is, what, what is the significance for the Jewish people? Why did God want them to do this? And one, it was to sort of resemble this covenant that God had established with these people and a reminder to Abraham and all other people down his line that God had established this covenant. But it was very much like a wedding ring today. I wear this wedding ring, but it is not the, the marriage itself. It's just a symbol of the marriage. I can pop this off and put it back on, and it doesn't matter whether it's on my finger or not, I remain married. And so circumcision was an outward symbol of things that God had already done for his people. It was meant to be a symbol of what God had promised and the relationship that existed and a reminder to Abraham and all that followed him that God had done something on the inside. And this was a representation on the outside of what God had done. But it was also meant to be... Oh, so this is the point, sorry. To experience God's power, we must have the revelation of our own weakness. Right? We need to understand our own weakness. But here's how this ties in. Here's how this point ties into what was said to Abraham. Abraham's obedience did not mean that he was contributing to anything in the covenants. But in fact, it meant the opposite. The cutting away of the flesh meant the renunciation of human effort, which arises out of the flesh and the willingness to bear about in the body the mark of the individual's identification with God. Circumcision would always represent to Abraham the failure of his flesh. He tried to secure a seed, remember Ishmael, through his own work, instead of through faithfully trusting God, circumcision would always remind him of that. In other words, circumcision wasn't just, hey, this is just an outward symbol. It was, just remember you are weak. Just remember your flesh can achieve nothing. Just remember your flesh and the sinful nature is at war with God and at odds with God, and you need my power, and only I do this. Not you. And we need to get a grip and a grasp of just how weak we are. Because I think sometimes we can rely on ourselves, and we can be dependent on ourselves, and we think that we're all able to do that. This, this thing that God has called us to, but only God can do that. And then lastly, I'm going to two, three minutes to end off with here. The last point is this. To experience God's power, we must be others-focused. Abraham, when receiving this blessing from God, asks also for his son Ishmael to be blessed. He could have left it, but he asks for his son Ishmael to be blessed. And his response to God is a faith response to the promise, but he's also concerned for others. You also see this in Abraham's life with Lot when, when he has the choice between what land to take. He says to Lot, you choose. Although it was Abraham's right to choose, he says, you choose, and he gives it away. And Abraham's growing in faith and in character, and he gets to this place where he receives this awesome promise from God, but in that moment, he doesn't think of himself. He thinks of others. And so principle number five is to experience the power of God in our lives, we must be others focused. James 4, 2-3 says this, you want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight yet you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that may be spent on your pleasures. Philippians 2, 3 says this, do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves. We are blessed like Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to people. Abraham was not blessed so that he could live it out and experience it all himself. He was meant to be in the Israelite people. The nation of Israel were meant to be a blessing to others. 
God has blessed you and has blessed me and given us everything we need for life and godliness, and we have the body of Christ, not so that we can just huddle together on a Sunday and encourage each other in our personal challenges. That's part of it, but so that we can be a blessing to others. And if we're not spending time praying for other people, if we're not going, God, if only my family as well, bless them, Lord. Lord, if only my church as well, give to the church what you've given to me. If only our nation, Lord, let me pray for the leadership. Let me pray for the government. Let me pray for Eskom's leadership. Let me pray for what's going on around the world. Give it, God. Don't just give to me, but what I've got, let me give away. If that's not our attitude, God's going to start to take away what very little you do have. If the prayer is not this, Lord, may my neighbor, no matter who he or she is, may my neighbor be blessed because of you at work within me. That's not our prayer. We've got a selfish heart. Those are the five principles that we draw from chapter 17. It's probably a whole heap more. But those are at least five that I think we need to be living in and embracing and cultivating in our lives in order to experience the power of God. I'm going to pray for us to receive that. I'm going to pray that over us. And then we're going to go have some coffee. Have some coffee afterwards. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. And just this morning, Lord, with, with reverence, just want to say honor you and bless you, and glorify your name. Jesus, you are the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and apart from you, God, we can do nothing. And so I pray, Lord, these principles, may you come and establish them in our hearts, in our lives. May every single person in our Connect Church be someone who never writes you off, who remembers that you are the God of the impossible. May we walk blamelessly before you, Jesus. We pray that you'd establish that by your Spirit. Come and search our hearts. Show us anything that's not of you, God, in our lives. Lord, may we be spirit-filled people, kingdom-minded people. May we be people, Lord, who think about others and who pray for others and are selfless in our faith. And people, Lord, who realize our weakness and are totally dependent on you. May we be humble and contrite in our hearts and our spirits. May we be a loving family who reach the nations and the city for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. Amen.